Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 47 of Inking Out Loud. For today's podcast, we're going to be wrapping up our read of Robert Jordan's A Crown of Swords, the seventh volume in The Wheel of Time. I'm your host, as always, Rob Santos, and I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And making another return to the podcast, his wife, Lauren McCaffrey. Lauren, what's up? Hey, thanks for having me again. No, thanks for being back. We've missed you since, at least I've missed you since the uh, we had you on Calamity, though. As of now, that's technically not true as we're recording this because the two of you have recorded an episode together in which I was not a part because I haven't read that uh, subject. Oh, Lauren was on Eye of the World, too. What? Oh my god, she was. Look at me being forgetful. I'm a terrible friend. (laughs) Of course, then again, in my defense, I had a nasty hangover the day after that one, if I remember correctly. Eye of the World Part 1? That's when I had the Glenfiddich, I think. Oh yeah, I think that sounds right, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That was a hell of an episode. Anyway, thanks for coming back, Lauren. Absolutely. So, uh, I'm ready to dive right into the book here, but first what we're going to do is we're going to give Drew the chance to recap everything that we've read up to this point. Drew, finish off this book for us, dude. Yeah, so, uh, we read a little bit less than half of the book on this one, uh, and most of this portion of the book takes place in Ebu Dar, where there are four major kind of developments. The first is that the Wonder Girls discover the kin the uh, you know this organization that fosters runaways and washouts from the White Tower. The second is that Matt uh, has a run-in with Tylen, which we will be discussing in depth. <laughs> a run-in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the third is that Nynaeve finally breaks her block and marries Lan. And the fourth is they uh, fight the Golom and find the stash of Angreal and Tur-Angreal, including the Bowl of the Winds. And then elsewhere, uh, Perrin is sort of exiled half in earnest and half uh, orchestrated by Rand to Gildan to get Masima in line. Uh, Rand kind of goes through this depressive funk, uh, finally comes out of it, has a bath, and uh, and then goes and makes use of his Taviran nature. He begins hammering out a deal with the Seafolk. And then he goes to deal with the rebels, uh, Toram Riotan's rebels in the countryside. Where he runs into Padden Fane and is wounded once again uh, in the same spot on the side. This time by Fane's Shadar Logoth dagger. Uh, Samitsu saves Rand with the help of Damer Flynn, but cannot completely heal the wound. Rand then, in turn, uh, sets off his invasion of Ilion and takes Ilion, chases Samael to Shadar Logoth, where Samael is killed by Mashadar. Rand balefires Leah, the maiden who was left behind uh, back in Lord of Chaos. And uh, Rand assumes the uh the laurel crown the crown of swords at the end of this book yeah he does and that's pretty much where we leave off right i will admit that um i fell slightly short of my required reading this week i read all the way up to the first page of the last chapter i think it's the last chapter a crown of swords yeah yeah no i mean it's not to say i haven't read it a dozen two dozen times before this but 
as far as my required reading for this week goes, I managed to reach right at the very end. So my uh, my recollection of everything in this book is going to be excellent up until that last chapter, at which point it'll be mostly okay. It'll be pretty good still. Um, but did we have a we didn't have an epilogue in this one, did we? Uh, we did not. Okay. It, there is a sort of epilogue scene at the end. And this is actually a good segue into our style discussion Hell yeah, because let's do I want to draw parallel back uh, to Blade of Tai Shao uh, okay. by Matthew Stover. Okay. If you recall, at the end of each chapter in that book, mm. there is this sort of myth, this mythologized telling of the same story of Blade of Tai Shao. And during our episode on that, I sort of compared that to exactly what is going on at the end of this book. Where we have our close third-person point of view with Rand. You know, he accepts the, the crown of Ilion. And you get all this, you know, all hail Randall Thor, king of the world, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then there's a, a page break. Well, not a page break, but a, a line break. And it goes into, The story spread as stories will, and changed as stories change with time and distance. Spreading out from Ilion by coasting ships and merchant trains of wagons, and pigeons sent in secret, spreading in ripples that danced with other ripples and made new. And it goes on for some time and talks about the rumors that have spread and how this story is developing. And it ends with, And for some reason, men and women who told the tales often found a need to add almost identical words. The storm is coming, they said, staring southward in worry. The storm is coming. And this is one of these uh, kind of key moments in the series where Robert Jordan pulls out of third person limited and goes into this omniscient narrator it's rare most of the time we see him do this is during the wind sequence where he kind of does a yeah, yeah. you know At the like beginnings. a movie camera view that goes down into our third person close uh point of view yeah and then but here and this doesn't happen at the end of every book but it does happen at the end of some books there is an omniscient narrator that pulls out and has this kind of big view of the world and what is happening after the climax. Yeah. And in the, in the audiobook is exactly where the music, the dramatic music that finishes off the audiobook starts to kick in as well. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, no, I, as far as my style discussion here uh, goes, um, I did want to point out more use of dramatic irony. We've been hammering this point, you know, again and again, but I still, I still need to point it out in this situation because I found it so amusing. And this was when Nynaeve decides to investigate the kin, but Elaine has no idea why she's suddenly being so subservient. I mean, they are eyes to die, after all, right? Yeah. Um, but more, more importantly than that, though, there is one thing in particular that I've been very very keen to discuss approaching this part of this book and and now's the time so we get this scene or it's, it's actually part of a scene as it's remembered by Perrin where he and Rand have to, like, have their fake but totally real fight with one another over the the fate of the Aes Sedai in the Wise One's custody but the reason mm -hmm. I want to discuss this is twofold the first obvious point of discussion is why did Jordan choose to make this happen off screen because it, surely, considering the sizes of the last three books, there was definitely page room for another scene or two, right? I want to get your both of your opinions on that, Drew and Lauren. Why make this happen off-screen? Uh, I think he did it because he wanted the readers to be uh, nervous, worried about it. Uh, that he wanted us to feel like Rand is becoming more unstable 
Okay. And that if we saw, if we got the whole thing on the page where we know that Perrin and Rand, uh, like, planned it out beforehand, there, the tension from that scene would have been drained a bit, you know? I, I also think <laughs> we're kind of in the point of view of everybody around them, you know? Like, Perrin's getting ready to leave and he talks to Loyal, and we're kind of in that same understanding as Loyal is, where it's like... Oh, yeah, something happened. Yeah, something like, big. Hey, I'm so sorry. You know, but Oh, I, I see what you mean. Not not like point of view as in we're not in the, no, the perspective, no. but like we're we have the same sort of understanding. Yes. Okay, that confused me for a second. I was like, <laughs> what no, we were in parents' point of view. Like <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. Um I, I, I do feel a little better hearing that because I was worried this is what I was worrying about, and this is the second part of what I wanted to discuss about this. Um it's the confusion it left me with as a first-time reader at all of 13 years old. You know, I had no idea what was supposedly happening here. I don't know if I lacked the requisite logical fortitude or perhaps I was too ignorant or naive <laughs> to pick up on the political intricacies that are involved with such, like, you know, such a public but fake fight. But, like, reading this originally left me, like, very, very confused. And it left me confused as a teenager... Um, or sorry, I should say, and since it left me confused as a teenager, I imagine I wasn't like the only one. You know, I was really sincerely worried for Rand and Perrin's relationship for a few solid years until I, I grew up and I did enough rereads to grasp what was really happening there. I, maybe it was like how the fight was supposed to be fake, but Rand and Perrin, especially Rand though, they he, like he remembers it with regret and about how far overboard he went. So yes. my second question is, considering the effort it would have taken to actually write the scene, as well as how clearly we had room for a few more pages in this one, not to mention how cool that scene would have been to actually read, was it worth it? <laughs> I think it was worth it. I liked the way this played out. Yeah, because I don't know. Yeah, and I go ahead, sir. You know, we we have some hints there too. Yeah, yeah. Where he talks to Berylaine and he's like, "Hey, what if you serve me elsewhere?" Yeah. yeah, I suppose it just it confused me so much. Like I thought I had no idea that there, there was actually some political maneuvering going on with that until I was like sixteen and I was going through this for like the fourth or fifth time. I don't, I don't know. Oh, I just, man. I feel like it, it. If it alienated, what word did I just try to use? Alienated me enough as a as an early reader i worried that a lot of other people had that same experience because it really concerned me and i think it concerned me more than jordan was was meaning to concern me i don't know if it's a personal flaw but i had to at least voice that concern you know <laughs> yeah yeah i think that that sounds like it might be a rob problem yeah it might be a rob problem <laughs> who knows if you're listening to this let me know how you came across or how you found this whole this whole situation between rand and Perrin. were you actually <laughs> as worried as i was yeah yeah so, um, yeah, that's the end yeah, of my style discussion. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, cool. I didn't have anything uh, further either, so I I do want to move... Actually, well, no, I'll make I'll make one more call-out, because you brought up the idea of dramatic irony. Yeah. Um, I I really enjoy the scenes at the end of this book with Samael and Grandal and the Shido. Okay. Because we know... We know that it's Samael and Grandal, and the Shido don't, At this right? point, yeah. And we know... They are just being completely screwed with. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's entertaining, this particular instance of dramatic irony, because, yeah, Samuel and Grandal are bad guys, but so are the Shido. And the Shido, I, I think even, 
like on a on an almost unique level in the Wheel of Time are contemptuous. Like I I just it's easy to kind of look down on them for being stupid about everything they yeah, do, yeah. for following yeah. Savannah, for following Kooladin, you know, all this stuff. And so there's almost this sense of vindication seeing them get so thoroughly toyed with. Sure. Uh, although that does get mitigated a little bit by the one guy's point of view, um, oh, Merrick. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who... And his wife. Yeah, he his, like, his wife and daughters are yeah. left behind... And uh, and then he's dropped, of course, right in front of Rand's huge army in the plains of Moreto, mm -hmm. and they're like, "Well, it's a good run, guys." <laughs> well, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, and which which to be fair, you know, also a great a great move on Semael's part, where okay. Semael thinks like, "Oh, Rand has this huge army, like I'm I'm definitely doing what I can to fortify my borders, but if I can throw like." A couple dozen thousand Shido spears in their path. That's just going to help okay, me. Okay, because that that was going to. I'm glad you brought this up right here, actually, because this is part of the questions that I had for you later. Um, oh, actually, I think this might be the only one question that I had today. It might be the only one. I'm not promising that. I'm just looking at my notes as a whole here. But we do have some more reader questions to get to later. But this question here, Drew, I, I was asking this: What the heck was it that Samael was doing and just deciding? You know, what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna sprinkle some Aiel over the over all of Gildon and Ilion. You know, in in as far as I can tell, they're in pretty small packs considering their overall numbers. That doesn't strike me as very like tactically sound for somebody like Semiel. Like, why is he doing... Why is he giving so, all these, these transport or these teleporting boxes and these fool boxes <laughs> and telling and teleporting them everywhere? I don't understand what his goal here is. Two things. Okay. Two things. One, he knows that Rand has an army primed to attack Ilion, and the Shanchan are invading from the other direction. Okay, the Shanchan. So he's putting these armies in their path, knowing they're not going to defeat Rands or the Shanshans, you know, armies, uh, but they're going to delay them and cause them trouble. And the second thing, though, is probably more important, and that is simply let the Lord of Chaos rule. Dropping thousands of Shido across, you know, a portion of the world that never sees Aiel and that the Aiel have never seen is is going to sow tons of confusion and chaos. So. As we as we also got confirmed by Shidar Haran, who was. Watching that, he was wondering, "What is Samael up to? Is he sowing chaos, or is he, you know, working towards his mm -hmm. own plans?" Okay, I guess that that was the necessary context that we needed there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's let's move on into characters. Unless Lauren, do you have something? Okay, cool. Um, yeah, let's move on into characters. And do we want to do we want to tackle the elephant in the room first or last? I, I feel like we should do it last. Okay. I, I want to, I, I don't know, because I feel, I don't know how that discussion, how long that discussion is going to take or what's going to be said. So, I don't know. I feel like we should, we should stick to the routine as much as possible and then open that can of worms. Okay. So, let's start with Rand. Cool. Cool. Uh, Rand is extremely frustrating for a chunk of this portion of the book. Really? When I... he goes into this funk, when he goes into oh. this depression, and, and you're like... Like, on the one hand, it's sort of understandable because he hates what he's becoming and what he has to do to his friends, and he's also struggling with his madness, and he can't really control himself the way he's so used to doing. Um, but at the same time, it's also, like, really tough to read, you know? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. Um, you know, I... 
I, I was I actually wrote down I loved everything about Rand's sequence in the latter half of this book. I wasn't really considering his, as you put it, his his downward funk. Uh, for most of my notes here, I had actually kind of just gloss over that every time, and I suppose I really shouldn't be for somebody as important as Randall Thor. Um, but there was a lot of things about his sequence in the latter half of this book that I loved, and there's just so everything. Sorry, go ahead. Everything after the bath. Yeah, everything. Yes, everything <laughs> after the bath. There's just so many big things happening to and for him. And so many great instances we get of him just of, be, of being Taviran and actually working out in his favor for a change. What's it like? Uh, okay, I did write this down here. Once he gets over his brooding over what he thinks he's done, with air quotes, to Min, we get to see Randall Thor as some of the most majestic and downright badass that he ever gets in the series. You know, like the chapter where he goes to meet the Sea Folk. The parade, the uh -huh. procession, the Aes Sedai approaching him to kneel and they kiss the backs of his hands. I was just like, wow. <laughs> I got shivers. I'm like, what a power play. That was a detail I'd forgotten about. Yeah, yeah. What about you guys? Oh, and I, I personally, one of my favorite series uh, scenes in the whole series is uh, is when he duels Torum Rat. Yeah, yeah. I'm going, I'm going uh, right there next. You know, like I loved the the little the little touches. Um, let me find the the chapter. Um, it's I believe it's Blades is the name of the chapter, and uh, and and you know and Torm riots in is like uh, you know squaring off and it's like without warning Torm tossed one of the swords. Rand caught it out of the air by the long hilt. Those gloves will slip, cousin. <laughs> you want a firm grip. And Rand just ignores him. Yeah, well, like, he talks about the jacket, Yeah, and, too. and he also, like, you know, he's You're gonna like... You're going to be cousin. Rand is right. like, bitch, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, and Rand just ignores him and, and just fights him to a standstill. Like, well, I mean, I he fights him to a standstill. Well, he did... He was... He kind of took a really big hit. Tore him... He did, utterly but that was when the hand. when the tent... Well, that was because Rand was distracted. Yeah, but one would argue that's exactly what a blade master is not supposed to do. Get distracted. I, I mean, sure, but the, <laughs> this is this is a not like if Rand were actually dueling to kill Torm Riotan and not for fun here, that wouldn't have happened. I suppose, yeah. If he was, if it was an honest blade on blade fight to the death, I I think he, you know, that's a good point. He might have actually, uh, he might have he might have sustained the yeah. challenge. He might have actually kept going and or winning. I didn't consider that. Huh. I mean, the void. Yeah. He's not going to be distracted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I wrote that down here too. Like as you know, as a sign of Rand's defiance, though he closes out that day with an absolute win, and he has this 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 line that I think might be the the single greatest line to come out of his mouth yet in all seven books, where he goes at the very end of that chapter, well, the chapter with the, with the the sea folk, I should say, the day is young yet, Min. You want to see me settle the rebels? A thousand yeah, crowns yeah. to a kiss, <laughs> their mind before sunset. I love that yeah. line. What a line. That, I, that's why I said that has to be the single, I think it's the single greatest line, in my opinion, to come out of his mouth yet in seven books. That was amazing. Um, but, of course, and I, I did write this down as an as a important thing to note, though. Jordan still finds need to remind us that Randall Thor is still human, despite everything that's happening around him right now, this this glory that he's found himself in, the people cheering for him, Taviran working out in his nature... He still has to prove to us that Rand is human, and he chooses to do that with Rand's burgeoning claustrophobia. You know, um, 
when he's on the Seafolk uh-huh. ship and he suddenly decides, or he suddenly feels too confined and he's and suffocated and he needs to leave. You know, this, this claustrophobia, that that's a result of his wonderful new friendship with the White Tower. Yep. Right? So, yep. yeah, I thought that, that was a really... That hurt me. Yeah, that was, that was a really I just, deft move, oh. I think. Sorry, go ahead. I, I really, that scene, I really felt for him. Like the, I, I just, you know, imagine being in that cabin and the chair is nailed to the floor and he's kind of trapped in there. He has to stoop. Against the table. Because he's so tall. Like, he, yeah. Ugh. See, I don't, I've never understood claustrophobia. I understand that's, that, that it's a legitimate, terrifying thing to, to, to go through. But I just, for me, confined spaces don't really do it. So I found that it kind of alienated me a little bit. I never really understood Rand's fear but i imagine for those with claustrophobia it would be pretty hard to read or just anybody who's got that empathetic response so i didn't really get claustrophobia until i went caving for the first time ah that'll do it and and i say caving not spelunking because spelunkers are the ones who get themselves trapped in a cave and cavers are the ones who get them out (laughs) of the cave i've never heard that term before this is what i was taught yeah, everybody says spelunking, but it's not... Spelunking is cave diving. No, it's just caving. I'm so I've always confused. heard that defined as cave diving. But but anyways, like <laughs> there was a cave we went into where if you're a virgin to this cave, you have to do this little loop. And I had my head turned the wrong way, so I thought I was trapped. Ah! Like, you can't imagine you can't move your arms... And you can't move your legs. You can move See, your fingers and your toes. And that's how you're going to move forward. But you can't turn your head. Like, it's it's between the top of the cave and the, and the oh dirt. My. Oh, that's awful. God, that's, See, this... that's when you start to understand See, when you're like, oh, no, I'm trapped. This harkens back to our Calamity episode where we spent 15, 20 minutes talking about our worst fears. And, Drew, you told us an, en- <laughs> an enthralling story about why you were afraid of heights. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, this is... Yeah, I'm in a dark basement right now, and I feel a little claustrophobic after hearing that story, Lauren. <laughs> Yikes. I got out. I got out. It was fine. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> I'm really glad. Um, but yeah, so sticking on the topic of Rand here, yep. uh, I also want to talk about his continued struggle with um, killing women. Okay. Because this comes back again uh, at the end of A Crown of Swords with Leah. Yeah. And how... Uh, Rand kind of gets away with it here, uh, but it shows that this is still a really dangerous uh, sort of tendency he has. He's ready to deliver the killing blow on an unsuspecting Samael, and he instead balefires Leah. And he's lucky because Mashadar got Samael. But Rand's choice to sort of save Leah from her torment his his kind of innate sense of like I need to protect this woman could have really bitten him had Samael escaped Mashadar and gotten after Rand again yeah you know yeah um like I don't know as far as his bail firing of Leah I took it hard the first time, and I've taken it hard every single time since because of what, obviously, what Balefire is, how final it is. Um, it's not something that anybody should be doing lightly, and, it's, and especially the fact that we have somebody like Randolph Thor aiming it towards a woman, which is such a big deal for him. Um, 
Yeah, it, it. I don't really know what I want to say about it. I will say that it was foolish for him to do that, um, but it should like. I don't know. I don't know if if I would like the the character of Randall Thor if he had just abandoned Leah to that fate for his mindless bloodthirst for Samael. Like, I don't know. And on the subject, I, this is another question. Actually, I want to ask you guys. I just thought of now. How do you? How do we feel about? Jordan killing off Samael in the manner that he did off screen again. We never got to see <laughs> Samael die. Like, what? What do both of you guys think about that? I wish we'd gotten to see it because I kept questioning throughout the first read, like, where is he? Yeah. Is he coming back? Where is he? Drew? I didn't. I didn't also. trust him to be dead. Mm. <laughs> yeah, see, that's uh, exactly I, how I was. I never had a problem with it. Uh, and I did trust him to be dead because I knew that Mashadar is such a like Balefire. Mashadar is a final death. Like if you're eaten by Mashadar, you're out of the grasp of the Dark One. So it I like for instance later in the series we're gonna get a particular reference that somebody is masquerading as Samael. Or yeah. that Samael gave these orders. And when I read that, I was like, oh, well, clearly it's somebody pretending to be him. It's not actually Samael. Hmm. Well, when I read it for the first time, I was obviously very disappointed, wanting to see Samael die on screen, for lack of a better <laughs> term. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm still a lot more on Lauren's train here. I still wish we had gotten to see it, but since then, I also have come to an understanding of what Jordan did with this, and that is... Proving that we don't need to watch every single person die to accept that they are dead. Because it's a very slippery slope, I think, bringing back characters who you presume to be, who everybody presumes to be dead, or who you pass off as dead. And this would have been a perfect example of uh, some very fertile ground, you know, to sow those narrative seeds, to bring him back in the future and be like, well, technically you never saw him die. I can see why Jordan yeah. did what he did. I think he wanted to make a point and say, look, some characters are going to die off screen and you have to accept that. And and starting that with Samael, I think was a good way to prepare for that for for example, the last battle. Uh-huh, right? Um and and there's a a little more to it. Uh so Robert Jordan of course was asked many times about this. Oh, I imagine you know, people yeah. being like is he actually dead and he said Samael is toast, you know, and things like that and but one one person, I don't have the exact quote uh here with me, but one person basically asked him, like, why did you do that? Like, it was so anticlimactic. And his response was more or less the lines of, Samael was a punk, so I made him go out like a punk. <laughs> Samael like, was a punk, and I made him go out like a punk. I mean, it, he didn't use the word punk, but it was, it was oh, okay. kind of that kind of a... Um, Connotation to it. Yeah, like, like he didn't deserve an epic death. Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, because I'm going to be reminding you that you said this during my uh, my final draft entry. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, in general, I liked the the Ilian fight and Rance fight against Samael. I greatly enjoyed uh, Moradin's appearance in Shadar Logoth. Um, and I have to ask you guys, uh, so on this topic... The first time you read A Crown of Swords, were you confused? Did you, like, who, as to who that was, who helped Rand? Uh, yeah. Okay, you know what? I'm trying to remember to my first 
first few reads. I think I was completely flabbergasted on my first and second read. I had no idea who this was. In fact, in fact, if I remember correctly, I think I was very skeptical of everyone who was saying it was Moradin. He names himself. No. He says, I'm Moradin. Wait, does he? In Shadar Logoth? No. Right? Doesn't he? I don't remember that. Because um, afterwards, Rand keeps thinking of that man with the strange face. He doesn't put a name to the man until, like, oh, maybe the I'm Gathering wrong. Storm. But I also, as I professed at the very beginning of this episode, this is that last chapter that we're talking about right now is the one chapter I didn't brush up on right before doing the podcast. So I could uh, be wrong. Yeah, he, he does not name himself. Rand asks him several times, who are you? And he and he avoids it. Oh, okay, shoot. But he, he does say, you know, I have never been afraid of Aes Sedai. You probably should leave here now, but if you intend to stay and kill Samael, you had better try thinking like him. Uh, you know, so he shows that he knows the Forsaken. Mm. I don't know. So for me, the first time I read this book, I thought it was clear as day that this was Moradin. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm baffled when people are confused by that. I, I, thought like, it... I thought it was so clear. Like, his description is the same. He, he you I know, think... the dark hair and blue eyes. He knows the other <laughs> Forsaken, and he's using Balefire, but it's slightly different, so it's clearly the true power. You see, I I think it but it must have been a question of motives though, and that's what that's my I guess my next question for you right now, as I'm thinking him up and I go along here. Why did Moradin have to help Rand? Why did he choose to do that? I never really understood. Well, he that. says, he says, he says a great many plans will have to be relayed if you don't kill him here, if you die here. Yep. the The line is, you can find the way. It seems if you're led by the hand. Try not to stumble. A great many plans will have to be relayed if you let yourself be killed now. That's yeah, just... and, and I take that to mean, you know, as we go on in the rereads of the story, he needs him to go down this path of madness so that he can, yeah. you know, in the very end, get the, him the to dark that one, point. If the Dark One is going to ultimately succeed, he needs to turn the dragon. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's, if yeah. the dragon dies, the cycle just happens again. Like, you know... The Dark One can't fully win without Rand on his side. Well, hold on a second, though. But that, that, that brings up another question, then. What would have happened if Rand had died here? The Dark One still still would have broken free, would he not have? Uh, uh, free to remake probably. the world in his own and, image? And there probably would have been, you know, like another, you know, seal reforged imperfectly, and we would have had another cycle come around. Maybe. Interesting to consider. But and I realize because, because sorry, at this point in the series, everything the shadow is doing is not pointed at killing Rand. It's it's pointed at converting him. Yeah. And the only people who are actually trying to kill Rand are off doing their own selfish things. Hmm. You know, ignoring the Dark One's yeah. orders. I uh I realize we are still at the very beginning of our character discussions here, I have one more thing about Rand's character I wanted. Well, actually, not about Rand's character. This is something about Min's character, but I found it appropriate to insert it in my uh, points sure. about Rand here. This is this was in Chapter 33, A Bath. Um, I made the note that, like Elaine in Avienda, Min also takes none of Randall Thor's bullshit. And there is definitely some bullshit, to be sure. Never let it, said, or let it be said that I said Rand is flawless. But... How Min, how Min differs from Elaine and Avienda is that she doesn't do it from a high and mighty place. Like she she doesn't use condemnation 
like Elaine seems to a lot of the time, or insult, like Avienda seems to. Min just seems <laughs> to keep Rand human by way of, I don't know, snorting at his lame attempt at jokes and jabbing him in the ribs when he needs it. I was never too much into Min, you know, as a first or second or even tenth time reader, but I'm growing far more appreciative of that woman now that now that I'm a young man. She sounds really freaking cool. How do we how do we feel about Min? I mean, I still don't particularly like her, but no, I yeah, Lauren. I I mean, I recognize you know the ways in which she helps Rand, especially here. Uh, but I she's not like she's not my kind of person. <laughs> no, Lauren. I would be driven up the wall by her. I uh, you know, Drew's definitely pointed out to me the points where I have a grudge against you know Min. Like, sure. she, she did some really stupid, stupid things. I can see how she helps him in the ways that uh, the other girls aren't able to because they have important things to do mm-hmm. in this series. Um, but I don't know. I, I think I'm still rethinking how I feel about her. That's fair. That's fair. I'm interested in what these really, really stupid things are. Are they in the past or are they in the future? future okay okay well this i'll definitely want to lauren or sorry i should say drew make sure lauren's on for those episodes because drew will know when they're coming yeah i mean we'll we'll see uh if we can get you on i know we already have a lot of our guests scheduled for future books that's true that's definitely true i don't want to get too many cooks in the kitchen but (laughs) Um, uh, that wraps yeah, up if, if we don't, everything yeah. I have to say about Rand Althor for now. Should we move on to, well, I say move on to Matt, but that also kind of could lead us into that proverbial mind <laughs> Yeah, let's do Matt field. last. Let's do Matt, Matt last. last. Well, okay, Matt and Let's Tyler talk about the then. Wonder Girls. Okay, let's talk about the Wonder Girls. Start with Elaine? Sure. Okay, cool. Big moment for Elaine that she's completely unaware of. She is now queen, not only by succession, rightful succession, but by transference. Right? Yep. Morgays yep. has officially spoken the irrevocable words. I think they're called the, the irrevocable words. Um, yep. Elaine has no idea that her mom's alive, but now she's just so much more rightly the queen and needs to get her ass firmly planted on that throne. Um, and we also had a lot of satisfaction from Elaine's point of view. As, you know, first she gets to put the Aes Sedai in the Terrasen Palace firmly in their place. And then she gets to enlist their aid in her triumphant return to the kinswomen. So yes. much win. I was uh, Yeah, uh, I loved both of those scenes. I uh, love those. Definitely Yo. cheering for her, Elaine, in those scenes. I was like, yes, so much win. So much. Like the the faces on Rihanna <laughs> and the kin when they walk in and they're like, Oh yeah. no. Well they have they have their masks on. And she takes hers off yeah. first and is like, ooh. Yeah. And just the yeah. instant <laughs> paling. They're like, oh my and, and their assumption, they're just like they they assume that of course. Oh, uh, Elaine's the one that's in trouble, though, and they're here to interrogate her about Elaine, right? It's like, no, I, you know, I forget which which Aes Sedai it was. It might have been Marililla. But the, the line is, I fear you yes. must address yourself to Elaine Sedai. Yes, I fear you <laughs> must address yourself to Elaine Sedai. What a stupidly huge grin I got from ear to ear when I read that line again. I was just like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, oh, so great. Satisfying, very I, satisfying. Well, I love her scene when she's addressing them. Like, they're all like, how dare you? You know, we've held this secret for so long, and here you are endangering it. And she's like, excuse me. And she, like, she lets him go at her for a minute, and then she's like, voice of command, here we go. No way. Mm-hmm. Like, no way. 
I, I do not accept responsibility for your foul-up. For right. not telling me. Yeah. Yep, yep, oh. yep, yep, yep. So, so good. Yeah, the... Pretty much, like, Elaine and Nynaeve in this portion of the book are great. I, I don't really have much to complain about at all with them, Same. and I have lots to glow about. Well, like, I actually have... Their, their chapters are fun. A couple uh. of very specific things that I'm going to gnash my teeth about coming up in a few minutes about Elaine. Well, yeah, there's one thing that I'm going to complain about, but that's part of the Matt and Tylen discussion. Exactly so. the same as it is for me, I bet it is. But as far yeah. as, as for the vast majority of Elaine and Nynaeve, Nynaeve, especially for Elaine's character, I was just, in, in this series, in this point, in this scene, I was just so, so stoked for her. It was so vindicating to see her get to do that. Yeah. I, I do get annoyed with their pettiness towards Matt. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. So I, I, I'm going to complain about that because oh, it gets obnoxious same. at a couple points in this book. Obnoxious? Where that's, I'm that's, just yeah. like, yes! But most of that is before this section that we're discussing today. Most of it, not all of it. Yeah. You're talking about They're much well, better like, after they are forced to apologize to him. Yeah. 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 Oh, I would, oh yeah. Yeah, okay. They're, Which is they're where better. we left off. They're definitely time. better. Yeah. And and yeah, that's right. So if I'm remembering correctly, the first chapter that we opened with this time was the chapter where they apologized to him. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. See I was I was so ready to, to talk about that at length in the last episode and I realized that was one chapter past where we had stopped. So I was like, Oh no. But now that I'm realizing I still have those notes open, I can see what I have about Matt here. Uh, da -da -da -da. The start of his bromance with Brigitta. Oh my god. I love it. Awesome. Yeah, that was at the end of the last uh, Oh, was it? Uh, yeah. Damn it. Yeah. I must have uh I must have mentioned that previously. Though. Yeah, the last chapter we read for the previous episode was Swoven Night. Yeah, Swoven which Night. is when Matt uh drinks with Brigitte right, and right. recognizes and the hangover her. is where we pick up yeah. before in this one. Correct. Yeah. Well, oh. they still have some time together. Yeah. They do. Yeah, yeah, they they like drink lemonade and stuff out like trying to <laughs> yeah. spy on the kin and yeah, and they're like pointing out. Brigitte's pointing out like cute chicks, and Matt's pointing out ugly dudes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and to expound upon Lauren's point there, with his battle of the sexes that's going on between the Wonder Girls and Matt here, when they finally apologize to Matt for their behavior in the stone, and Matt just brushes it off as, "Oh, it was nothing." Which you know, as a young male in my own right, I can absolutely see why he would say that. He do, he, he doesn't want to seem like he really really required too much out of them. But also, um, no longer being an ignorant teenager, or maybe just now being an ignorant adult, I can also see where Elaine's indignation comes from right there. What about you? Drew, you sound like you want to say something. Sorry, go ahead, dude. Yeah, so I don't think Matt was diminishing that because he was, like, trying to act cool. I think he was diminishing it because he was painfully hungover and just wanted them to leave. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes. he was That's like, I question. don't want to be talking, I don't want to deal with anybody right now, Cool, fine, whatever. Get out of here. A uh, uh, thank you would have also accomplished the same thing, though. But he just wants to—he wants to downplay it. I think it's a—it's a—it's a, a, a mark of his character. The right, even in his wretched state. Oh God, I hate hangovers like that. It's the worst thing in the world, right? Is there a worse feeling than being that hungover? I mean, it's pretty far up. Oh there. God, it sucks. <laughs> but as I was saying, sorry, before I went off on a tangent there. Uh, he brushes it off as though it was nothing because he probably just feels uh, um, sheepish at that moment. It probably makes him uncomfortable to have somebody actually meet his eyes and kind of just profess their faults, yeah, especially coming from Elaine and Nine, like Nine Eve. That must have been so uncomfortable for him. 
even though he kind of obviously wanted an apology, I think when he finally got it, it was he, he had bitten off more than he could chew, and he was just really uncomfortable about it. Maybe a little bit, but I really think it was mostly because he was just so uncomfortable. There and is pain. that possibility. Like, like I mean, that would be it, it was. It was very much yeah. him being like, let me go back to bed, leave me alone. Yeah, if that was me, that that's exactly <laughs> what I would have meant. But I think Matt Coffin is a better person than I am. <laughs> but, so, do you want to move into Matt, then? Is that what we're where we're going here? Yeah. Oh, we have Nynaeve. Yeah, let's get Nynaeve out of the way before we step on that landmine. Okay. Okay, now... So, Nynaeve. Oh, so much good for Nynaeve in this in this part, too, here. Oh, so, happy day, Lynn. Huge moment for Nynaeve. Perhaps the biggest moment for her character in this entire series at this point, so far. She broke through her block. You know? Yep. And it was fascinating knowing what's coming beforehand. I guess maybe, maybe a little bit more dramatic irony, depends on how you define it. But it's interesting to see the pattern itself shift or shift itself and shift her into a position where she can finally do just that and it was admittedly pretty dark i mean for Nynaeve it was surrendering to death um Uh but it also really says something about her strength of character or maybe just her strength of will that she literally needed to die or at least accept dying to break through her own self-imposed imposed block Mm -hmm. okay so i find that interesting that she only has to do it once well, yeah, I mean, ideally you only have to... Well, what am I trying to say? No, I, I think it makes sense. It makes... Yeah, once you do it the first time, it becomes easier every single time after that, I imagine. I don't know I for her. I don't know that this had, like, a huge I think, effect on her mindset. I think she's still the same person, so it's interesting that she just has to... Well, I, I oh, think... see, I don't. With, with, I think she becomes a very different person yeah, after this. Yeah, with, with, the, with the block itself, I always took that more of a self-imposed restriction. Like, it's something that you that you don't believe is possible. I think your own self-belief has a huge part to play in it. And, and a big part of this block was her, like, her struggle with the identity of an Aes Sedai. And concurrent with her breaking her block is uh, the collective group of Aes Sedai around Elaine and her recognizing them as Aes Sedai. Like, Nynaeve very, very seamlessly shifts into a oh, position that. of authority among the Aes Sedai after she breaks her block. Okay, now here's, ne- and, and it's, <laughs> here's another question. Sorry. Why would she not also then take the lead as the strongest, by far, by orders of magnitude, the strongest of all of them? I mean, Is she it... does take the lead a lot. But, but Elaine... It still strikes me as the one who's in charge most of the time. Is that just because Nynaeve steps back well, and lets her... Well, it depends on the situation. Right. Like, oh, so. when there are situations where Elaine is better suited for, you know, taking I mean, yeah, the lead. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, but, like, I mean, especially when you, when we see Nynaeve um, in Winter's Heart and onward, where, like, she's in basically a power struggle with Cadswain. You know, like, it, it's... Uh, Nynaeve pretty quickly after breaking her block, accepts herself as an Aes Sedai and transitions into acting like an Aes Sedai. As far as, as, far as the block goes, though, I think it, it, it really has to do with... Yeah, and I'm sorry, I, I agree with everything that you just said. I actually hadn't considered that, the fact that this happens right concurrently in the narrative as she is accepted as an Aes Sedai by other Aes Sedai, and she gets that position of influence and, and authority. I hadn't considered that. Um, but with with this with this block that she has, I think it's a big part of her being able to do it going forward without having to break through this block again and again and again, is is because she has to accept that it is possible, and it, that, that sounds really trivial, I suppose, 
but when she actually manages to feel Saidar inside of her without being in a helpless rage, I, I think that changed her enough, and that just the idea that she saw herself able to do that kind of just lifted that veil from her eyes, and she managed to break... She doesn't have to go... And I think that's why she doesn't have to break it, or anybody, for that matter, has to break their block again and again and again. With Theodrin, it was... Yeah. with I think with Theodrin, it was attractive men. Boys. Yep. Right? And she had to, like, close her eyes, or, or maybe there's a different Aes Sedai who couldn't channel anything. Yeah, no, that was Theodrin. Yep. That was, okay, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Um, that's everything... Oh, sorry, that's not everything I wanted to say about Nynaeve. Mashiara... That whole scene, Land's Return. Holy crap. Uh, First off, the ebook cover, I, I'm really disappointed I don't have the webcam running up this week because I was going to show you guys the ebook cover unless you. I mean, no, I, I know what it looks like. It. It's great yeah. to see Land and Nynaeve like, finally brought together on a cover like that. And also, Nynaeve married. Yep. It's, it, it's, since it's such a pertinent theme over the past few episodes, I don't know if you've given them a, a listen yet, Lauren, but I'll say it again. Congrats, Nynaeve, on the sex. <laughs> and I think she yeah. really needed it. Honestly, a naive. Sorry, this might this might sound really really crass. I, I think she needed it. <laughs> so I I want to kind of rewind a little bit to the book cover yeah. point you brought up there with I the ebook cover. cover. Uh, you love that cover, I so love it's that funny cover. that cover got major back because of how awesome Lan looks and how handsome he is. Uh, no, because Lan looks like a zombie and Nynaeve has red hair. Oh, see, I'm looking at it in e-ink that's black and white. I don't I don't see color. Yeah. They have uh, 90s hairs red? Yeah, what the f- Really? It's, it's like, really dark red. <laughs> what? And, uh, and Lan's face is, like, gaunt and skeletal and pale. Well, yeah, he's, like, And a lot of people push back point, hard right? on it. And he's that's why really when... Dumb. That is why when they released the trade paperback versions of these books with the e-book artwork, they changed the artwork for Crown of Swords to the Cadswain scene. Cadswain scene? There's another yeah. ebook cover? No, it's the trade paperback version. Oh, I'm gonna look this up. They they commissioned new artwork for a crown of swords and new artwork for the Path of Daggers. The original Path of Daggers ebook cover was uh the three of them using the bowl of the winds. Oh, I have seen and that. And there yeah. was again a lot of pushback on that because people were saying like they got like Nynaeve's nose wrong and, and like and that it was too comic booky and it didn't look right and all this. And so when they released the trade paperback version of Path of Daggers they commissioned new artwork, and it is uh, the scene of Elaine unraveling the gateway. Oh, and I'm looking at the uh, Crown of Swords right now, the uh, art for the, the trade paperback on that with Cad Swain there. That's cool. I've yes. never seen this one. Yep. Yep. That makes me like Cad Swain even more. I can't. I do want to discuss Cad Swain today. <laughs> we also have some listener questions about Cad Swain, too, that we still need to we get do. to. We do. Damn, we are really... we got to get chugging on this episode. You know, you know, let's let's save the Cadswain discussion until the listener question yeah, about yeah. her. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, but segueing just quickly off of Nynaeve, we got to talk about Mogedian. Oh, because she does have a point of view, full chapter and another section just before Nynaeve breaks her block. I want to point out first off how much it shows the the extent of the kind of psychological damage uh, Mogedian has taken from her experiences fighting Nynaeve and losing, and then being mind-trapped and tortured and presumably raped oh, by yeah, Shadar yeah, Haran. Yeah. Oh, presumably um, raped? I hadn't got that, that vibe. Well, he is a murder Murdral, dude. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> Fair point. Fair um, point. Uh, the, this is the spider. This is the woman who strikes from the shadows only when she knows she can absolutely win. 
and she just climbed up on top of a roof in broad daylight yep. and tried to cast Balefire in the middle see, of a city. I didn't see that so much as like part of her of her changing character so much as I saw it as the pattern forcing Nynaeve into a position where she has to confront her block. Well, I mean, it's one and the same. It it's okay, she's so okay. rattled, she's so off kilter, off her game that she does this incredibly rash okay. thing. Okay. And and that incredibly rash thing allows Nynaeve to break her so block. What, so what I interpreted as as the pattern just kind of forcing our pawns into these positions, you're saying, it's actually a really good point, could simply be the, the, the pattern using Mogedian's shame and her change of character as a vehicle to bring about Nynaeve's confrontation. Yes, right? and okay. I also think we have to be careful about considering the pattern as like a, an active conscious thing that forces yeah. people to do things. Fair enough. Like the pattern doesn't weave itself. Like, it, a major theme in the series is free will. People can make choices. Even people like Rand and Matt and Perrin, who are the most constrained by the pattern. So it's more like the pattern allows room for choices to end up benefiting certain people. Okay. Yeah. You no, know, it, it's not sense. like the pattern forcing Magedian to go do this. Right. Like, and that's, that's, that, that's a mistake I think I've been making quite a bit, and I'll be wary about making going forward because this is not the last time i'm gonna read this series oh no yeah <laughs> uh but but i want to rewind back to that Magedian point of view yeah go for it where we have her memory of like you know meeting you know, waking up in the vacuole and yeah. meeting morden and and uh i love that scene yeah he's just he's just sitting down there writing letters i suppose or something uh -huh. like going through ledgers i was like i can just totally see like a pair of bifocals on his head and he's just being really really prim about that sorry go ahead what, what about that scene well no i i love the dynamics it shows us among the shadow and the shifting dynamics among the forsaken where moradin like it used to be much more kind of egalitarian and confrontational among the forsaken especially in the early books when Ashamael is around, where we mm. see, like, Lanfear arguing with him in the World of Dreams and things like that. And now it has become very clear Morden is a step above. Yeah. <laughs> in this book, Morden is kind of observing and spying on the other Forsaken, but not in, like, any sense of, I need to know what they're up to in case they're working against me. It's more of a, like, a parental or authoritative observation where he's like i hope you're not getting up t to too much bad you know like i hope you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and it, he's so secure in his authority now that this marks a huge shift in the political landscape among the forsaken and, and to expand upon that there's also something else i wanted to bring up about morden and his relationship in the way that Jordan chooses to mirror that character with Shaidar Haran. This is something that we saw earlier in Lord of Chaos when Jordan was mirroring Randall Thor in Demandred. Because in two separate uh -huh. scenes in this book, we have, you know, uh, Grandal and we have Samael with their little machinations. And then we have another character, the Watcher. Up, the Watcher. <laughs> the first time we had Moradin, and the second time we had Shaidar Haran. By the way, that Shaidar Haran scene, that was something I gobbled up 
every single time I came across that. I yes. want there was something about, I wanted to know so much more about that Murdral and what made him different. The fact that he had these abilities that other Murdral didn't have, these personality traits and quirks, these uh, uh, like just th- simply the fact that for some reason he still had this weakness too. Well, up to this point, Shadow well, See, that's, been that was huge. the big hint to yeah. me that that he was essentially a vessel for the dark one to reach into the world it was this restriction i can't go too far away from shadow or from shile ghoul and if i do i can only stay away for so long before i right. have to go back the fact that the spear kind of just disintegrates in his hand these are there are uh-huh. mo- these are the kind of moments where i'm just thinking about the threat that randall thor still has yet to face and it's just spine tingling it's just so intimidating in scope it's just like oh my god and, and of course Shadar Haran being so intimidating up to this point gets we get this little moment of weakness and it, and it ties directly with Shale Ghul itself which is intimidating in its own implications and it's like holy crap but all but what I was originally getting on this point here for was the fact was wanting to discuss the way that Jordan mirrors this exact scenario with Shadar Haran with Moradin and the fact that they're mm-hmm. both again kind of played as these observers who are watch who are kind of pulling the strings but not everybody else is aware right yeah uh it's uh, another thing i wanted to bring up just a tiny little tidbit from that Mogedian scene when uh she is mind trapped and she sees him you know like she her mind trap is on this necklace and she sees a second one inside the yes ship. and that draws so much so much discussion i love the, the the sheer amount again of the fertile ground of so much discussion that jordan just casually plants right there in front of everybody yep. it's masterfully done yeah yeah so <laughs> we're still on our character discussions we haven't discussed yeah. Perrin yet I, I don't have a whole lot he, to say about Perrin. i'm much. gonna be honest yeah I, oh. I really, I mean, he only gets like a couple of scenes in this Hang part of the book. Hang on a second, I'm looking and... at my, my notes from last week when I had tons to talk about with Perrin. I actually really didn't write down anything about Perrin this week. Sorry, my apologies. So you were saying uh, you didn't also have much about Perrin to say this time? Yeah, I... yeah, I mean, he's only in a couple of scenes, you know, leaving the Sun Palace and going right. to Yaldan. Yeah. Um, but but we are, you know, close to an hour in now. I think we, we need to tackle Matt and Tylan. Okay, because we still have questions to get to as well after this. Yes, we do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's let's um let's put our flame suits on, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Jump right into this. And one. and we are going to jump right in, and and I'm just going to say this straight out. Tylen raped Matt. Yep. This is not an argument. Yep. One hundred percent agreed. She, she sexually assaulted him and harassed him and stalked him and finally raped him at knife point. Yeah. And and we're going to see the psychological effects of this going forward. Matt really suffers some like Stockholm syndrome. Uh he also, I mean like there are points in this book where Matt's talking about like how he just wants to cry. Yeah. You know, like this is not a healthy thing that is happening to him. And while it is played a little bit uh as like a r- role reversal because Matt is like, you know, a flirt. Nothing Matt ever does yes. is remotely like what happens to him. I will here. drink again right to that point. Sorry, continue. Yep. He he does not chase after girls when they say no. He does not force himself on them. He does not use violence to get women. Like he 
He does not stalk. Yeah, he, he doesn't stalk them and starve them and treat them like animals. Uh, and probably, so I'm going to segue back to Elena Nynaeve. Maybe one of the most infuriating parts of this book outside of the actual rape of Matt is when Nynaeve and Elaine are laughing at him yep. about it. Yeah. Okay. And saying he deserved it. So, yeah. That incenses me. Now, <laughs> let me begin by saying I agree with every single thing that Drew has just said. He has not been wrong yet at this point. I don't think he's going to be wrong because we have discussed this at length in the past. On Together, just in, in private, we've discussed it online, in forums, on, uh, in, in, in theory posts and stuff like that. Um, but I do have to say, because I... Simply because I agree with every single thing you just said, I can already think of a counter-argument that somebody might throw at you for saying that. And they would say, you've mentioned before in the past Jordan's proclivity for using the unreliable narrator as a device. And what if, even though, of course, we're basing our assumptions that Matt doesn't treat women like this at all, could that have anything to do with the fact that Matt doesn't see himself as doing these kinds of things, but maybe he is in reality? I don't think that at all. But I can see somebody trying to fling that in your face. So what would you no. say to that? No, because Matt may be an unreliable narrator in some situations, but Matt was raised in the two rivers and raised us with a certain uh, perspective on women. Mm -hmm. And we see this as a major theme in the series. You do not harm women if you're a man of the two rivers. Yeah, and harm does not necessarily simply mean physical harm. Yeah, like yeah. Th this is... That's a non-point in in my mind. Yeah, Lauren. That's a that's an extraordinarily flimsy counter argument. So I was gonna bring up that uh, it's not just once. Uh, he's reflecting yes. when she sends him that basket of food. Yeah. That yeah. he he was grabbed by the servants and forced into the room. Yep. For her, again. Like, the, you know, this is something that keeps happening. Wait, I, yep. I, I, I completely missed this little detail. He was physically He's, forced into yes. a room by a, a gang yeah, of servants? Yeah, she sent, like, a group yep. of servants yep. to grab him that? and drag him he's into the He's reminiscing about it. Like, he's thinking back when he's got this flashback, stupid eh? basket that that she sent him. Uh, it's, it's in that chapter where they start... Yeah, they're no, heading it, off. It, yeah, I'm, they're, they're leaving for the Rahad, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that. Yeah. No, I. Okay, I remember the scene where he gets the basket. Um, yeah. And I and I want to say, and this is something something that both of you have touched on in our discussion so far. I'll just expand upon that. A huge part of my frustration with these scenes is not only about Tylan's behavior, and I don't know if this says something about me personally, but more so than that, as utterly despicable as Tylan's behavior is in almost every scene that she was in, what bothered me above and beyond all other considerations was how Nynaeve and Elaine treated Matt throughout this entire thing. The suspicious glares, the scathing admonitions, the presumption to accuse Matt Cawthon, apparently because he simply has this appendage called a penis of forcing himself on her. Like, against all logic. Like, they assume, having been given no reason to suspect Matt, of all people, to comport himself in such a way, that Tylan was the helpless victim. And that the Queen of right. Bloody Altara herself can't, like, say, for example, summon guards to protect her if that was the case. As if she couldn't have had Matt arrested with the barest wave of her hand. She might not be the most powerful ru of rulers on the planet, but she is the highest-ranking 
person, this figure of authority for a thousand miles in any direction. Their assumptions against Matt's character was bad enough, but their assumptions against all logic was somehow even worse. And it's re it honestly really stained those characters of, of Elaine and Nynaeve for me through a significant portion of this book and future books going forward. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so just for reference, the quote here, it's when Matt walks out into the courtyard and he says, besides, she would not try anything here. At least he did not think she would. Then again, was anything past the woman who had had half a dozen serving women seize him oh. in the halls last night and drag him into her apartments? The bloody woman treated him like a toy. And and that language continues on where he talks about how she she treats him like, quote, some sort of doll. And like, yeah. the, he he's being completely dehumanized in, in this. Like, I cannot... And, like, it also drives me nuts when I see people try to argue, like, oh, it's just, like, a BDSM relation. Like, no. no. There's no consent going on. This is, there's nothing, like, there's no two-way street. Like, this is a purely sexually predatory thing going on here. And... It's mentally predatory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, definitely. I, agree I mean, I... Duckling, kitten... Oh, I'm going how to many, feast on roast duckling tonight, and all you? the all the servants and the cooks yeah. are laughing. And okay, um, okay, um, the fact that she's willing to starve him, right? Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. Like, I oh, I I I don't even have words. The fact that she's denying him food to make him crawl into her bed is just the most despicable, disgusting behavior. I, I didn't have as much of a problem with this when I was a teenager because I had a lot of hormones, yada, 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 yada. I, I still found it terrible, reprehensible behavior, but I wasn't nauseated by it like I am now. Well, it's easy to gloss over because the rest of the characters don't see Act it that like it's way. not a big deal. And Matt doesn't see himself... And Matt, well, Matt's conditioned yeah, through he's... this to basically... You know, you know what it, what it was. Blame himself as, as like going through and trying to justify this to myself. I suppose as as a teenager, I think it was the fact that Matt has this oft repeated line throughout this entire scenario, of, or or at least implying that maybe he's just justifying it to himself. But he keeps implying that the main reason this bothers him is because he is supposed to do the chasing, and that is just right. it, it is it, it, Matt himself is presenting it as a gender kind of a gender bend a reversal of, of circumstance that the reason it bothers him or even he himself he might have approached her for a dance or something like that it but he's the one that does the chasing and for some reason he keeps justifying to himself that that is why it makes him so uncomfortable and, and he justifies the extreme nature of it because she's a queen she can do what she wants. Yeah. She can use this Tyler, extreme force that, because that she's the queen. Authority is, is, is part of yeah. something that I meant to to condemn her for, but I haven't remembered to do so until now. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, like it's. Yeah, I don't know. I get, I get really, really. It's five seconds of silence. Heated about I, this. I agree with that. Like, uh, yeah. All right. Have, have we got everything we need to say about this this horrible situation out of the way? Should we continue? Sorry, yeah. What's going on? Yeah. I, I'm kind of like trying to marshal my thoughts and decide what I want to say here. And I, and I kind of want to say this. Sure, go ahead. So this... 
this is a, a, a big thing that I, I harp on a lot. Um, like themes of rape in general uh, don't sit well with me, and, and this especially um, with Matt and Tylen. Um, and that is because some years ago now, I was sexually assaulted. And it, it, like, it's so hard to get out of your own head and reading Matt's point of view where he's so in his own head and how easy it is for people to blame you. For something that's not your fault when, when you're taken advantage of. And then you get these idiots out there being like, oh, well, it's not possible for a guy. And I, I don't know. You know, I, I have to point this out as an occasion, ladies and gentlemen, where everybody else listening to this is learning something about Drew at the same time that I'm learning something about Drew. Um, I've never heard this before. Um, I can say that I definitely know people who are in the exact same position. Um, you know what? In, in fact, I'm comfortable enough saying it. I was also sexually assaulted several times. Um, that said, it is, it's, it, it actually, Jesus Christ, this is not something I was prepared to say today. Um, I'm not sure if, I, if there's anything that can be said about it. Anybody who's been in a situation similar to this doesn't need to hear what we have to say because they know they honestly do um reading this i don't know if if jordan was was trying to use this as a plot device i don't know if if i really honestly count this as a mark against jordan's character maybe he experienced something like this in his own life and this was an outlet for him to express that i don't know but i think he handled it very poorly in this case i agree and i do not think he wrote this sequence as he should have I think he made it way too easy for people to view it as comedy. This is, this is one of my biggest criticisms of The Wheel of Time. Uh, not just like, oh, I'm like angry at what this character did in this situation. I think this is a major failing on the part of the writer. Sure. Uh, and I really, really hope that this is not in the TV series. Uh, it, it's, Or at least they present it perhaps in a different way. Perhaps in a way, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe that. But I, I could do without Jordan it altogether. I, I could do without it altogether. See, I, I could all, I could do without it altogether. But at the same time, I, I just worry about that. That again, that slippery slope. What else can be left out? What else can be changed um, for anyone else's infinite number of of ends? Um, I, I again, I think that this was handled in the wrong way. I'm not condemning this kind of subject material, but I'm condemning this particular manner in which it was presented, in which yeah. it was executed. Yeah. I I will say I saw it as him making a point, as like, watch how how many of my readers just gloss over this when it's a reality. I don't. I don't think he was doing you that. You don't think he was doing no, that. I don't. Hmm. Um, no. And I think if he had done that, Harriet would be he much more outspoken about this when people ask her about it. And as it is, she's she's pretty low key in her responses and just saying, "Oh, it's a role reversal," and that 
and like there's I think this was a major, major misstep on Robert Jordan's part. Uh, uh, saying it's a role reversal implies that this is a role that he does which it. Matt has taken yeah. beforehand. Which, no. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, completely disagree. So, that good, said. Good lord, they are being really incredibly loud upstairs. Sorry. Um, uh, okay, so, are we at That's, the end of our character discussions here? No, we're not because we're we're we just did Matt in Thailand. Yes, and we have more Matt to discuss. Oh, okay. Because we have uh, Matt and the Golam, and we have Matt and Olver at the end of this book. Oh yeah, Matt, Matt and Olver. Yeah. The the chapter I think was called "Promises to Keep," and how Matt handles the the Sea Folk. And how he takes it upon himself to find Olver. Um, there, there are undercurrents throughout that chapter that really show Matt's baseline decency. How concerned he is for this orphan, you know, that, that he's taken under his wing. And... And the way he reacts when he's going through the city and starts realizing the Shanshan are invading. It's... And and then how... How even though he's annoyed at Nynaeve and Elaine, he takes it upon himself to... You know, he realizes, like, I'm the one who has to do this. And instead of just letting them be on their own, he steps in with the, with the Seafolk and uses his knowledge from his memories. <laughs> yeah. He uses his knowledge to to adapt to their customs, to to have to establish a dialogue with them accurately and also to insult them. Mm -hmm. I love that that in Daughter that, of the Sands? Yes, that oh. Bilgestone. <laughs> Bilgestone. <laughs> and then he's he's thinking to himself, no, he has a better control on his temper than that. And then he insults them again. And he thinks, oh no, maybe he doesn't have a better control on his temper than that. And of course, the honestly, since we're on the subject of, of, of insult or cursing from Matt, as an aside, my favorite Wheel of Time curse of them all. Oh? Oh, sheep swallow. Sheep swallow and bloody buttered onions. There's another really good one in this book uh, that I enjoy uh, when he's like, he calls him a flaming penny grubber and says he'll stuff a white cloak down his gullet. <laughs> uh, I, oh, I didn't like that one anywhere near as much as I love sheep swallow oh. and bloody buttered onions. Oh, I know. No, trust me, sheep swallow and bloody buttered onions is the best curse and then, in and the then, entire series. And then series. Matt, of course, out of the out of the corner of his eye, glimpsing Elaine, kind of mouthing that one. <laughs> Blood to and save fire. It. Yeah, to trying to trying to internally save that one in her records. That's just oh. That's oh great. yeah, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say uh, during the fight with the golem when Elaine goes down and. Uh, and she says, um, well, a couple of times. Uh, so she says blood and fire once, and then later she sees, um, like, all the dead. And she goes, oh, light. Oh, blood and bloody flaming ashes. And Matt's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweet summer child, you don't know much, considering what she's going to learn in the future. I do like Elaine's, uh, her proclivity for the cursing, or at least her attempt at learning how to curse. It's, it's something for somebody as prim and somebody it's endearing with her upbringing it's it's very endearing i will i will accept yeah yeah it's a mark yeah. for her in my case yeah so 
Um, Ooh, I, I do have something on that discussion. You know, when he's talking with the sea folk, he also, you know, has to bring up all of Brigida's knowledge ah. about the Golam. Uh-huh. I, when I first read this, was like, oh, man. Like, what else are we going to dig out from her memories? What else do we get? Oh. Like, you know, she she has all this buried in there. And, and we know from further on in the series, she only has a limited amount of time with all these memories still there. Uh-huh. And I would have loved to get more. Right. Yeah. Oh, damn. I, I hadn't considered that. That, that's that, a good point. that would have been a huge source of frustration for me if I had thought to consider that. And going forward, it's now going to be a huge source of frustration for me. <laughs> damn it. Sorry about that's that. That's a good point. Brigitte could have... We could know so much more than we currently do. Yeah, she knows about stasis boxes, too. What? Damn. Damn. Ah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and... So, on the topic of characters, I just want to say, rest in peace, Nelesian. Ah, Nelesian. Oh. My man! He went out exactly like he wanted to. He did not want a boring morning, and a boring morning he did not get. Yeah. So. I, I loved him, and at least we got him resurrected when Brandon Sanderson got a hold of Talmanis, so. Yep. Yep. Yep, pretty <laughs> much. I, I can agree with that. There's also a moment later when Matt thinks to himself, I think, I want to say it's in a memory of light, about Tylen and and uh, Nalesian having a dance together in the afterlife about something. Maybe, like, I don't know, something yeah. that was bothering him in the moment. I, I liked him, him at least mentally referencing Nalesian. He The man deserved it. He was he was interesting to read, and I was sad to see him go. Yep. Yep. He was fun. Yep. <sighs> yeah. So, uh, with that, uh, shall we move into uh, listener questions? Yes. I kind of want to, like, combine listener questions and lore together since... They're, sure. The questions I saw are kind of like overlapping with the lore I, uh, Absolutely. you know. Sweet. Okay. So, Michael Good asks, Gents, it's known that the crossing streams of Balefire is what establishes the connection between Rand and Moradin. How does this work? Yeah. So, this is still sort of theory. Although, uh, Brandon Sanderson actually came out fairly recently and illuminated, uh, although he was careful not to say, like, confirming, yes, this is exactly what the deal is, but it's the idea that channeling is linked to the soul, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so when you are casting Balefire, so to speak, it is your soul driving oh, it. I'm so like, glad your you Your soul that. has... Um, like this sort of intent behind it and when the Balefire streams crossed because Balefire exists outside of the pattern Balefire cannot erase Balefire it cannot burn Balefire out of the pattern and the Balefire merged becoming one stream because it couldn't like fight itself yep. you know and Logically, in that right. moment when the Balefire merged into one stream Rand's soul and Moradin's soul also merged because the souls are tied to the Balefire through the power. Yeah. And I think the fact that they are also playing very, very similar roles in the pattern itself, being, you know, opposites of one another, being uh, balanced in that manner might have had a lot to do with it. I don't know. Um, but I, I'm really... I mean, I like the philosophical intent behind that yeah. idea. And, and, I'm, and I'm really glad that you brought this up because I was going to say something along those lines, though nowhere near as articulately. Um, I was just <laughs> going to say that I, I'm pretty sure that Balefire 
um, being something that affects the pattern itself, being something that's kind of distinct from the pattern, like it, it kind of establishes this connection to your soul. The, the Balefire, I, I, I saw as part of, of somebody's soul and the fact that they were able to touch those streams, they were able to form that connection. They were able to form that bridge, if you will, um, or, maybe, or maybe that bridge for their souls to find one another past that point to continue doing this i mean we know later that rand also spoilers for the future of the series obviously you knew that coming in um rand also grants or is granted access to the true power later because of this exact thing right he, yes. his his connection to morden everything that they're feeling these phantom pains from one another their souls are inextricably linked and they are linked more than they ever have been before in any other iteration of the pattern as far as i can tell before uh-huh. because of this Balefire. And I think the reason for that is because, as Drew just said, Balefire itself is more than a weave. And I, I don't care what Perrin says later in the series, it's just a weave. It's something more. It has to be something more, because its opposite is also something more. The Flame yeah, of Tar Valor. It was really... I mean, this is something, a discussion for Towers of Midnight. Yeah, but, definitely. Uh, that, that line makes sense in the context of its you know, yes. telling... But in the context of this conversation, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, but but that is, to the best of our current knowledge, which is probably the best we're ever going to get, that is the explanation <laughs> for how the Balefire Crossing connected their souls. Yeah. So. It's part of your soul. Balefire is part of your soul, and when your soul touches another soul, it's linked somehow. I guess we'll have to take yeah. that, right? So, uh, what's the next question? The next question here is from, uh, this is one I really want to get to, to talk about, from Christian Prater. Is Cad Swain a strong character, and do you guys like her? <laughs> well, I think we, we answered that, uh, the second one on our last episode. <laughs> yep, but, I definitely did. Definitely. Uh, but they are very much two different questions, and I do think she's a strong character. I think she serves a role in the series. I think she serves a, a you know, a, a, an impactful, even though I hate the word impactful, um, you know, she, she serves an important role in the story going forward. She's not like, um, she's not an expendable character, I don't think. Uh, Robert Jordan had a strong vision for her and executed it well. I think she's very well written. Her personality is fully realized. She changes a little bit as a character, but she's also the kind of character who's not supposed to change. That's what she is. You know, when, when you're whatever, 275 years old, uh, you're set in your ways. And so it's her her character arc that we see begin in this book is all about how she has to adapt despite being so set in her ways. And I think that was well-written. Lauren? Cad Swain. Yeah. I, I, I only get annoyed at Cad Swain a little bit. And that's when her pride overcomes uh, what she should be doing. She's just... She doesn't always think through. She just knows that she is right. And I think that's a big theme throughout all the books with a bunch of different characters. Like, imagine if Ramonda and Liane could work together with Swan. Like, what an insane <laughs> rebel force they could have 
because they have the experience, you know, that Egwene does not have. And I think the only reason Egwene ends up where she is is because pride. Like, they outdo themselves competing with each other because they all think they know best. And it happens over and over again with the, you know. Welcome to the Aes Sedai. Welcome to the Aes Sedai. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I yeah, I also agree with with both of what you're with, with both of you guys. Um, I made it very clear in the last episode that I am a huge Cad Swain fanboy, even though I definitely was not as a teenager. I, I had a huge turnaround on, on her front. I love Cad Swain. I think she. I don't. I don't think she's flawless because I don't think anybody's flawless. But I think she is damn near as close as it gets. No, no, I can't say that either. Lauren, you make a good point. There are times where I am kind of frustrated with Cat Swain when she exhibits being a fool. Too much pride. When, when she Too exhibits, much. and this is something I think, I think Sanderson said this in the Stormlight Archive. This is not a spoiler. This is just something that, a quote from there that I found re that really resonated with me. And that was the definition of a fool as being somebody who ignores facts in lieu of desired results. And I think Cat Swain definitely is, is guilty of this, but... To answer the yeah. question for this week, you know, I've already answered whether I like her or not last week, and I expanded upon that just now a little bit. But as far as whether or not she is a strong character, I think it is – one cannot argue anything otherwise. Cad Swain is such a st stolid, dependable touchstone as a character who remains unchanging and who honestly does have something very valuable that we see to teach Randall Thor, to teach the Ashaman, more, more on Rand's front, of course. Um, somebody who is as strong of will, somebody who commands so much presence, and of course, that's something I touched on last week, somebody with whom others have so much regard for. I mean, there's one point where I laughed earlier with Min, when Min said something along the lines of, I think she, she described one of the, she described Cad Swain and said that one of the other uh, Aes Sedai described her as something akin to the creator's sister, or spoke of her as if she was the creator's sister and I went, that's just, it's so cool to see how everybody just immediately treads so lightly around Cad Swain and how she just has this legendary strength not only of will, but of just of simply the one power too. I mean, she's really, really strong, right? You know, I. It's also to Cadzwain's credit how she constructs her retinue. These eyes Sedai that she's gathered around her are among the most competent at what they do, even if they're not necessarily the strongest. And and like for instance, Samitsu, I I love her as an eyes Sedai. By the way, she's one of my favorite eyes Sedai, and I also. Uh, sort of off topic i love the scene where damer flynn heals rand and yep. sumitsu is like what did you just yeah. do and, and she's like i will do anything i will bear your children yeah you need to tell me what you just did like <laughs> yep. it was pretty cool yeah so she drops her fear immediately she's just like i don't care anymore that you're an ashaman like this yeah. is my Point of like, life. She's like, a yellow. My... Yeah, yeah. She's, a yellow. she's a yellow, but she has a very brown mentality about it. But she's also very prideful <laughs> in the fact that as Cad Swain, you know, confirms, or at least as Cad Swain demands, she is one of the most, if not the most talented healer currently alive. I think Cad Swain says there is nobody alive better than she is. To know? the extent of Cad Swain's knowledge. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's because Cad Swain doesn't know about Nynaeve yet. There, yeah. but... Um, but still, I mean, oh, there's also that, that one uh, kinswoman who's also super, super good. What is her name? Yes. At healing? At yes. healing. 
It also um, starts with an S. No, because Sumiko is the one who's super good at shielding. No, there's one at healing. There's one they... at healing, yeah. Oh, wait, no, it is It is at Sumiko. I, want to say, uh, I know it also and started with an S. Bar- Barrowin is Barrowin. the one who's good at shielding. Yeah, okay, okay. Barrowin, is she, I was going to grab really, my is she on also the one surface. that discovered the uh, sideways uh, traveling for the uh, the gateway so they could look down? No, on the she's not. No, she's, she's not, not strong, strong enough. enough. She can uh, only do shielding. Oh, yeah. okay, got you, got you, got you. Yeah, yeah, Still, yeah. Yeah, I know um, it also started with an S because I made that note, that mental note when I read it. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. So what's the uh, what's the next listener question we have? I, uh, let's see here. Um, from Mark Warren. I can't remember if this is more in earlier part of the book or in the part you'll be discussing, but I love the Black Aja Hunters subplot that Elida actually oh, yes. starts with Cien, who enlists Pivara. I've seen some people who find it boring or even pointless since Farron's list eventually supersedes anything that they've done, but I still enjoy it every read. So, well, what, what do you think about that? Uh, I love it. Um, I, so I'm, I'm glad this question came up. Because it gives me a chance to <laughs> gush. Cien is amazing, and I love her. She is probably my favorite Aes Sedai. And I think she got wow. a really bad rap where she just, like, she set all this in motion and then just got completely swept under the rug by the rest of, you know, like, the Aja uh, or the sitters who come in and help them. What about Pavara? Uh, I like Pavara a lot, too. Pavara's cool. Um, but Cien, especially, like, she's just so genuine and so nice and like she she's just like the antithesis of so many of the worst Aes Sedai that it's great to meet an Aes Sedai who's like that Sien is a and is a white yes she is a white okay yeah yeah so uh, I I love that whole storyline though I'm a huge fan I like that we actually get what? somebody that strong out of the white Aja, too, because I think they're honestly underrated. Yeah, because it's so easy to think of, like, you know, when you when you consider the Ajas in abstract, and you're like, all right, who's the first Aes Sedai that comes to mind from the white Aja? Most people are going to say LVR. LVR. <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and she's not even white, and so she gives the white Aja a bad rap, but I actually... I'm a big fan of Cien and uh, Serene, the, okay. the white who swears to Rand. So, you know, like, I'm glad that we got to see some some legitimately useful whites in the series. Damn, yeah. Damn right. And a good red. And a good red. And a good there's red. A couple, there's a couple of good well, reds. Y- Sylviana's yeah. great. Uh, Tarna's great. Pavara. Um. You know. Sutama's okay. Uh, I, I wasn't Sutama. a huge fan of Tarna, but she I didn't I wasn't also I wasn't like I didn't hate her either. I, I like Tarna. She's like the best kind of red, in my opinion. Yeah. The the one who like, takes she literally nonsense to, like, from the core no of what she's just a badass. Like she stays <laughs> true to what the core of the red Aja is demonstrated as. Yeah. Like like she's not into into guys at all. Like yeah. she's she's not a you know She's not thrilled having to work with men. I loved her whole. She's, but but she's not obnoxious about it. You yeah. know, like she's not evil about it the way some others. You know. Yeah. yeah. So, but but we're we're getting off off track <laughs> yeah. uh, from that question. Uh, Rob, what do you think about the Black Aja Hunters subplot? You know, I th- I I think I fall sort of guilty of exactly what. Uh, you're saying here how it kind of gets swept under the rug in, in favor of Cad Swain's ultimate 
you know, huge revealing list and her life's work and what Varen. she's been doing. Oh my god, yeah, Varen. I said I just said Cat Swain, <laughs> didn't I? Yeah. Oh no, no, Varen, obviously Varen. Um Serene, Cyane, especially Cyane, as characters of the white, I did find them to be refreshing. I found them to be um, pretty original. I was glad that we got some representation out of that uh, out of that Aja. Um, but as far as, as the subplot goes, you know, honestly, I, I, it, it, I, it kind of bores me a little bit, and I feel a little guilty saying that because I understand that a lot of people get a lot of interest out of this, and that it's it's, it's a as, as you two have been saying, especially you, Drew. It's it's something that really deserves a lot of recognition. But well, yeah, I don't know. especially it, because me, it it, it serves as like a backbone that drives together a couple other plot lines because it brings in the ferrets. Who were sent to the tower from from, from, from Saladar? Yeah, yeah. And and it lays the foundation for this um, uh, sort of coalition among the Ajas, uh, working against what Alviarin sets in motion in this book when she kind of blackmails Elida and starts telling Elida to to issue these orders that right. will specifically splinter the Ajas and apart. Th- this is something that uh, that Mark had said, uh, the the listener. He had, he had said that. Ironically, it's something one of the only things that Elida sets in motion that has a successful outcome, and I, I do kind of enjoy yeah. how almost accidental everything was in in how this plotline played out. Um, it was, oh yeah, because the whole sort of the whole point yeah. of it initially was to like get Alviarin in trouble to like undercover Alviarin's wrongdoings, and Cian totally misinterprets it as yep. like search out the Black Aja, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, okay, go ahead. I gotta say, it's not useless. They capture black sisters. Oh, yeah. Like, even though the list is gonna reveal them later, half of those women escape anyways. Mm -hmm. This is not a pointless act. Like, they could have gotten quite a few more had things gone on differently. Yeah, yep. It was a big deal. Yeah, and I would say they... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I don't... I, I just don't see it as boring because... I don't know. It's, it's just not, the whole spy yeah. thing. It's, it's, you know, they're risking their lives. They're trying to find people in different lies. It's fun. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I know. Um, I, I, I definitely am entertained by what it accomplished. I mean, even when Egwene is later in the tower and she comes across the society, and they're like, oh, yeah, we've been doing this the whole time. And, and Egwene get you know, seeing that through Egwene's eyes... Um, it was entertaining. Like, I will say, boring might have been the wrong word, but this, as as in perhaps my opinion, is still stained as, from my first opinions as a teenager reading this one. I didn't have the patience for hmm. all of these intricate politics, and and I just wanted to get back to Rand, and I wanted to get back to Matt, and I wanted to get back to Perrin. I don't know. I I need to look at these in a slightly different light, I suppose. I need to find more enjoyment out of them, because up, up to this point, it's been like, oh yeah, okay, this is entertaining, it's well-written, but how much does it really affect the whole story overall? I have this looming yeah. thing of Farron's ultimate revelation, and it, to me, it just kind of feels ultimately like it went nowhere, and it was it was entertaining, but it didn't accomplish m- much for the central plot in terms of progression and going forward. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, what's next on the question list? Uh, Joy Kristen Allen. I've heard some people say this is where the slog starts. I don't personally agree, but what do you think? And why could you think it'd be seen that way? 
Oh, well, I certainly don't I think, think the slog is, starts here. I, I think <laughs> A Crown of Swords is completely action-packed. This is a great book. Um, I feel like the only reason people might see the slog starting here um, is because this is one of the first books where we don't have... Um, like, the conclusion of it does end like a major plotline and we see a forsaken killed and all of this stuff but it's very fast and like you were kind of complaining about that we don't see samuel go down on screen and so i could see some people complain that like oh it's not as satisfying but i really don't understand the complaint of like slogging in this book because this is very fast paced yeah um I definitely saw this as part of the slog when I was younger. I, I'm going to be saying this again and again. What I've grown to appreciate as a reader as I've gotten older is, is very, very different from what I was looking for and craving as a teenager. I was bored with this book for the vast majority of it when I, on my first read and my second read and my, and my third read. Maturing as a reader, I have come to appreciate it in many, many other ways. And honestly, I think this is on my mental list of the best Wheel of Time books. I think this is fourth place on my list like i love this book um i think mm. both lord of chaos and the Sh shadow rising and a memory of light are all better than it but i don't know if any of the other ones really kind of stack up honestly um this book is awesome because it bored me as a teenager doesn't mean that it's any worse and honestly i have come to see why as a teenager i needed to grow up a little bit anybody who honestly thinks there is a huge slog in here doesn't mean that they're immature um, they might have different interests. They might be looking for something else. But I have since come to change what I think. I used to say that it started here, but I no longer say that. I think, honestly, the only down part of the series that could be argued is book 10. Yeah, I agree. It's just it Lauren, depends what, you what you're looking for. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what's next? Let's see here. So I keep clo not closing, but minimizing that window. Uh, oh, hey, another one from Christian Hayden. The fog that shows up while Rand is dueling Tormayat. Uh, yes. And Drew, I know you've been just chomping at the bit to get at this. Most people seem to believe it's a bubble of evil. I always thought yep. it was too similar and characteristic to Mashadar, not to mention Fane seems at home with it. I always took this to be one of Fane's tricks. Thoughts on this? Could it in any way be both? A bubble of evil twisted by Fane's presence. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I'm going to kind of tackle this in its entirety. So the reason a Go lot of people it. will argue one way or another, uh, one way or another on this is like, because we see Fane using, obviously we see Mashadar, it's a fog-like, you know, substance that has like tendrils and tentacles that it sends out at people. And we see Fane later in the series manifesting this fog around him. Um, and, and we know that Fane has these powers because he uses, uh, he uses them to like, for instance, take down the merge raw in the great hunt and set the trap in the, in the village in the great hunt and stuff like that. However, there's a very simple answer to this question. And that is, it is a bubble of evil. The glossary of the path of daggers under David Hanlon's entry outright says it is a bubble of evil. So... <laughs> There's, there's really no argument there. Yeah, setting um, it down in stone. Yeah, but, uh, but I want to dig into that a little more. Um, and for, like, why it can't be Fane doing this. 
And it's two main reasons. One, Mashadar, anytime we see Mashadar in Shadar Logoth or Fane, you know, manifesting this fog around him, it kills on touch. It kills horribly. This fog does not kill on touch because there are hundreds, if not thousands of people running around inside it. And it kills by like actually physically grabbing people and like tearing them apart, which is not how Mashadar works at all. Secondly, Fane only manifests Mashadar around himself after Shadar Logoth is destroyed, when when Rand cleanses the taint. Oh, okay. So interesting. And this is this is second. of course pre. You know, Shadar Logoth still exists. So. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I didn't consider that second part. But, uh, yeah, no, I can't argue, honestly, nobody can argue with what Drew just said, because it's literally listed in the glossary of a Path of Daggers, you said, yeah? Yeah, Path of Daggers under David Hamlin's entry. Yeah. Okay, um, uh, one more, this is from Rashid Kurugli, who's a patron. Uh, What's up, Rashid? What's up, Rashid? This isn't specific to a crown of swords, but can you get pregnant in Tel Aranriod? <laughs> <laughs> So I want to start off by saying, surprisingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, I don't know, depends on what your opinion is of Wheel of Time fans, uh, somebody did ask Robert Jordan this question. Wow. And he wrapped it. Depends if you're there in the flesh or if you're there in other ways. So he just straight up raffled it. Yeah. And and he also made an amusing comment where where he said, uh, basically... In, in his experience, anytime Wheel of Time fans ask him dirty questions like that, he said it always seems to be the ladies asking the questions. <laughs> yeah. What? That's what Robert Jordan said. <laughs> um, but... Uh, Theory land-wise, what, what would you theorize? So, I would theorize that no, you can't get pregnant. Um, I... And, like, I'm going to get into, like, a nitty-gritty weirdness here, but, like, I I feel like... Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> no, Maybe listen, I, I, would, I would think I could tackle this one really quickly. Check this out, all right? All right, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're there in the flesh, both of you, you're there in the flesh. You have flesh-on-flesh contact. Yes. Oh, well, definitely, yeah. If yes. you're that, there but I don't think in, that's the question. simply in soul, then no, you can't, because there has been no transference of sperm to egg simple as that you're just there metaphysically right like so so that's what i was gonna say too is that there's no like like your your body can impact somebody else's body in teleron riad like you know when you wake up you you can okay, have like yeah, you can have scars, scars and, and things sh- like that yeah that's, that's like that's like nightmare but but material, you could right? maybe make an argument that like once the sperm leaves the body it's no longer part of your body and it just becomes like a teleron riad metaphysical thing <laughs> jizzing but into then teleron riad but then i realized that <laughs> Nynaeve, we can make that the episode title sorry go ahead well continue but then i realized that Nynaeve makes teleron riad fork root tea and it impacts mogedian oh shit so uh, I think you could. I think you could get pregnant. I bet if, that's, if that's... you listen, if you were to get pregnant that way, I bet your 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 offspring would be like a messiah that is able to change both worlds <laughs> more that's how you get, more dramatically uh, than Randy even is when he's like Zen Rand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I bet that oh, would be well, you would just on, get the creator. That's how the creator was born. Ladies and gentlemen, we just figured it out here on the Inking Out Loud podcast. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So we have the Age of Legends where they all have like trainer rings and they can do all kinds of stuff. Wouldn't they have already 
done this? That's true. That's true. I mean, probably. They probably did. <laughs> they already have done this. I like the double, double entendre there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel like they would have an answer. They, the Age of Legends. I, and I feel like I'm coming down on the side of yes, you can get pregnant in Teleronia. I think I am. But also you cannot get pregnant yes. in the gap of infinity. But it would not right. be. Right. It would not be a standard pregnancy. It would. There would be something special about that child. I honestly think it would, it would change. It would. It would uh, be something know. insane, and something really cool. <laughs> oh man. So, okay. Well, yeah. do we? Uh, oh, of course. We have to do our three favorite scenes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, we so have to do we my, do have, have more scenes. that we need to do. I have a few miscellaneous thoughts I want to get out of the way. I can make those really fast. Okay. Though. Yeah. Let's let's do just some concluding thoughts, and then we'll do three favorite scenes. Okay. So so a while back, I was talking with our group chat. Drew, which which is which for those who don't know it, it consists of our Cosmere Theories Facebook the group admins um, and we well, shout out guys what's up and we've been friends for a few years now and there's one day I don't remember the context but you guys were surprised that I had never heard of grits which is apparently yeah. <laughs> a, a pretty common thing down there in parts of the states as a food uh -huh. or maybe a breakfast food from my understanding I don't know um, the, the reason I bring this up though is because I could swear that we got a glimpse of grits in Enid's kitchen and Ebudar. And this uh, is just yeah. an observation I made. I, don't, I, no, I no idea what it was at the time, but now I have my suspicions. Now that you guys have enlightened me on this fascinating food. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I do think so. Okay, so a few episodes back. Also, I wondered... <laughs> uh, I wondered if there's anything else that hawkers can do in fantasy books besides crying their wares. Um, as it turns out, there is something they can do besides that. In chapter 24, apparently a hawker can, and I quote, swallow their cry in mid-shout. Though that might only be because <laughs> they were facing down a grumpy Nynaeve. Uh, I will have to investigate to see if this is something that other hawkers are capable of. I will follow up again in the future. <laughs> okay. Uh, the revelation that Suroth's Dakoval is Amathera. That reveal in that chapter, and that whole chapter from Morghese's point of view by the way awesome that chalice slipping from like Morghese's hand and shattering on the floor I demand that they hit this scene in the show because you know they totally give a damn about what I think and that scene goes like it goes all hushed and the cup shatters on the floor in slow motion I can see that totally panning out it would be chills yeah um you know let me just go back and check was Leandrin not in that scene too Leandrin in the was scene she more? not Hold on she's a second. Not mentioned, she might be in the background. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she's in the background. Um, all right, let's see. I'm trying to see if there was if there was a description because she had the two pairs of you know Suldam Damane with her. Yeah. Um, oh man. Damn it! We might have to follow this one up. So one of them is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pura. Yep. Pura. Yep, that's Leandrin. Yeah, okay, okay. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. Well, it's a... I thought that was that other Aes Sedai from Tomon Head. No. Oh, shit, though. Wasn't there one on Tomon the Head called Pura? The one that Egwene met. Uh, no. Was not she had a different name. Um, we'll have she to said, follow like, this up remember afterwards. me. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, remember, I, th I remember that exact scene that you're talking about, Lauren. I think you're right. Honestly, I, I'm like... I think you're right, but we'll follow this up later. Um, I only have. I'm, one... I am like 99.9 percent .9 certain that uh, later on, when we see Surath interacting with Leandra and she calls her Pura. 
oh, as well. So I'm only 80% certain that Pora was already in Falmouth. Anyway, um, my last uh, miscellaneous point that I wanted to point out here is that we are officially at this point, and it doesn't feel like it. We've been doing this for so long now. We are now officially at the halfway point of the entire series. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, we are. We are uh, halfway done, ladies and gentlemen. There are still seven books to go. Okay, I, I am wrong. Uh, it is Rima who is Pura. Okay. Yeah. What does she call? Uh, what does she call Leandrin? Because I know she has a. Uh... Suli is later, right? That's what Egwene was. Sorry. No, Tuli was. Why it... did I say Falma? Tolman had. Yeah, Falma's on Tolman. Yeah, You're right. I should be more specific. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. We knew what you meant. It, it still made sense too. Um, um, Suli, or is it Tuli? Uh, Egwene was the one that had, was Tuli, named after the yeah. kitten. Egwene is Tuli. But what was what was Elida later when she was in the in the custody of the Shan Chan? Oh my gosh! Damn it! Oh, I do not Could remember. Sworn that was name. Pura. Mm-mm. Um, hmm. holy crap! We're gonna have a long episode today, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, we are. Um, <laughs> I'm a little baked. Hmm. But yeah, uh, so. Let's do our three favorite scenes while we're still at a, a still under two hours. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, I only wrote down two, and that was because I was hurriedly trying to put them together as I wrote this. Um, so, or as I did this podcast, I should say. So, first and foremost, obviously goes uh, the entire procession and, and their visit to the Sea Folk, Rand visiting them and making the bargain and leaving the Aes behind that whole power play everything leading up to it and everything afterwards I feel like it's kind of a cheap option because it's like two chapters of a sequence I'm talking about here but this whole day that Rand had there was just awesome and by the way something I forgot to mention earlier think about the day that Darlin had just think oh, about no, that right. day for a second there oh my he started there at, at the rebel camp with Caroline de Modred and, and Torum Ryatin and, and Fane, who, by the way, Rand and Fane came face-to-face -face there kind of briefly mm -hmm. in the tent. That was crazy. Um, but at the by the end of the day, he's literally walking through a bubble of evil that's, like, acting like Mashadar and ripping people's faces off, and he's carrying the half, like, comatose... Actually, the fully comatose, bleeding-out form of the Dragon Reborn so that he can be healed. Like, think about that day that Darlin had there. Sorry, right, just, yeah dropped my glasses i think it was what was it no it was my phone but um yeah so um rand invading Ilion, obviously his whole show down there that moment where he proclaims himself in the square and he has like lightning or was it fire shooting out of his hands and he says i am the dragon reborn and he has lightning going across the sky i want to see that on a poster a movie poster i so badly need that or like a, a metal album cover art or something like that. <laughs> that is such an awesome awesome scene or just uh, image to have in my head. And now I have to choose a random one here um, of everything that happened in the book. Oh, oh, shit. How could I not think of this? Obviously, with no question, The Butcher's Yard, Chapter 2. Yeah, I was uh, And the I way it begins. Oh, my God. Uh, that No, I'm, I'm glad I say that for last because that is my number one as well. That might be one of my favorite series uh, scenes, if not my favorite scene in the entire series. The Butcher's Yard. It, I have... If you just want to hear my opinion on it, go back to the previous episode and listen to what I had to say about it. I'm not going to beat it into the ground again. That is a perfect, perfect scene. Oh, yeah, okay. So, uh, Lauren, what about you? Your three uh, favorite scenes. Jeez. Uh, okay, 
uh, obviously Nynaeve getting rescued. I love that scene. Mm, okay. And Mashiara. and when she's she's just a disaster on the boat and she turns <laughs> she's so <around>. mortified. <laughs> and so she just starts like channeling the water off of her. <laughs> oh, I I really like that scene. Um let's see. There's a lot of vindication with um that scene with the kinswoman and um, Elaine coming back and taking off her mask and being like, hey. <laughs> yeah. Guess who's running the show? Um, let me think. A third one. Oh, I don't know. There are some great ones with Matt in this book. <laughs> like, I love him with, um, like, in The Wandering Woman. Mm. I think his relationship with with a lot of those characters is really fun and it and it matures there like with Olver. Uh yeah, yeah. Good stuff, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I would pick those two <laughs> if I had more time to think, but yeah. Okay. So my three favorite scenes, uh, in chronological order. Uh first is Rand's return to Kyrian and deposing oh, Queen Colavir. Forgot about breaking that. the crown and reforging it yeah i love love that scene uh second would be rand's duel with torum riotin and the subsequent uh flight through the bubble mm. of evil chef's and, kiss yeah and third is matt versus the golem it's just too great uh the, the oh, ancillary so events around that scene with nelisian's death you know heartbreaking uh but just in general, it's it's a great bit of writing on Robert Jordan's part where he manages to kind of pack in the ups and downs of, like, death. Sort of like red shirt death where, like, yeah. you know, they're just people you don't really know. These, like, random kin, you know, that you just met. And then Nelesian dying right there. And then, like, Vannon gets hurt. And you're like, oh, no, not Vannon, you know. And, like... And then you're seeing how formidable the Golom is, and then only by, of course, luck, does Matt manage to chase it off. So, yeah, something I totally I, yeah I loved that. Totally forgot to mention as we were discussing these earlier, but that scene was so terrifying and so horrifying. That was, I think, the scariest in terms of just sheer horror, scariest scene in this entire series. Like everything that was happening leading up to that scene and the, the atmosphere that Jordan instilled on that was just, it was hmm. superb. It, it gave me chills as a teenager and it, it was serious. It was, it was nightmare fuel. That golem is a spooky, spooky creature, man. Yeah. I mean, how many times did Matt tell them you are not invulnerable and yeah. here we go. Like we, we have this creature that you can affect with the power. So yeah. of all luck. the things in the wheel of time that I would not want to face, up there is a goddamn golem. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds like a pretty good spot to take us into the final draft. Cool. Yeah, definitely. I can start if you guys would like. Go for um, it. So this here that I brought to the table today is a raspberry wheat ale. It's called Pinky Brewster. Um, because obviously <laughs> I assume because of the, the raspberry. It's a 5.5% ABV. I, I really haven't been a huge, I don't know. Uh, fan of wheat ales in the past. I've only had a couple. They did they did not um, impress me at all. This one I was not expecting to impress me at all. Um, it was modestly priced, but 
honestly, it poured very dark. It was actually very, very, it was kind of plain, but not in a bad way. It was very, very simple, but refreshing. The raspberry was much, much lighter than I was expecting it to be. I was expecting it to be overpowering as a lot of flavored wheat ales. In my experience, have been the raspberry was so subtle you almost didn't know it was there it was actually really really nice but oh, nice. as i mentioned earlier drew while you were talking about samael <laughs> yeah yeah um and his and, and the entire reason um that jordan chose to perhaps end him off screen was because of his personality this here is from a brewing company called refined fool huh. and that is my ode there to samael Oh, that's that's really funny because I so the beer is called Pinky Brewster. I I immediately thought of Punky Brewster. Oh, <laughs> I didn't consider that. That was not planned, everybody. I swear to God. <laughs> I nice. <laughs> Did not consider that. But yeah, honestly, that was an amazing uh, raspberry wheat ale. It was honestly, I I'm probably going to buy it again in the future. It was um, very simple, not uh, not obnoxious. Very well pressed. Nice. I'll drink it again. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Lauren, what are you drinking? All right, so I am drinking Locals Stash, obviously referring to the stash <laughs> of Angrail, Songrail, Terangrail yeah, that we get. <laughs> oh, or the Stasis <laughs> Box, is, even. Yep. It is out of uh, Crazy Mountain Brewing, which is up in Edwards, Colorado, and it's a blueberry vanilla petite sour, 5% ABB, and it's only... It's got an SRM of seven, and I won't say the a uh, the IBU because that's a pointless, pointless stat. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is that? But it I'm was like, I'm, it's, uh, international uh, bittering unit. It's it. Oh, it became like in it? vogue during the like peak of IPA hype, where these breweries were trying to like out bitter each other with okay. like triple and quadruple IPAs. But it it doesn't mean anything because there are like five types of bitter and you not everybody can taste all five okay so, so would you say it's it like doesn't scoville, mean anything like scoville for spice what it really doesn't mean anything because it's kind of arbitrarily defined it's like oh, sort of yeah i would say less than that even wow it yeah. is it is a pointless number but we I'm still put it on everything still learning something new on every single episode <laughs> of the inking out loud podcast but yeah. but anyways, it's a delicious sour from the mountains. Um, you said blueberry vanilla sour. Yeah, Damn. it's really good. That sounds like fancy. It's yeah, pretty I like fancy. That. Cool. You need to come down here and do I, a brew I, tour. <laughs> a brew tour. That sounds like such a hangover. I love the idea. Like, Let's do it. Like it's gonna have to happen. brewery tours. <laughs> oh my god. We we have something like three hundred and fifty-two in this state. Breweries. Breweries. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my yeah. god. Yeah. We live in like the Mecca of craft beer. <laughs> uh, mecca of the hangover. It sounds like fun, dude. We're going to do that for sure. All of us. Yeah. So, what I am drinking today is something pretty special. Oh. This is an Imperial Stout from Cerebral Brewing Company in Denver, Colorado. And Cerebral is. Uh, it's, they're one of the best breweries in the state and especially when it comes to stouts they are just on top of the world there is a a big big brew festival and kind of competition called a festival of barrel-aged brews that happens every year and um a, another beer from cerebral not the one i'm drinking right now uh uh just won gold at that 
and this is like, you know, a national competition. Uh, but this one, so yeah, it's an Imperial Stout uh, brewed with cacao, nibs, coconut, and cinnamon. It is 10.2%. It's huh. very good. I mean, tons of coconut in this. I don't get a, I don't get a whole lot of cinnamon, but it's, it's a lot of coconut, nice, like kind of bitter, dark chocolate flavor, uh, but drinks pretty, pretty easily for such a kind of, you know, high ABV, heavy body stout. But this beer is, uh, is what Matt needed and what a real healthy, uh, well, BDSM relationship would have, and that is safe word. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> and I wish you had your camera on because the label of this thing is pink, has a couple of candles, and pink fluffy handcuffs. You gotta be shitting me. You have yeah. to be shitting me right now, Andrew McCaffrey. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm speechless. I, I don't have... I, I can't bring... <laughs> wow i don't understand how you continue to do this yeah that one that one turned out pretty well that was nice uh, it's pink of all things and it has handcuffs safe yep. word uh i like it i like it yep. i don't like it i mean but I, I really I like hate it. it but i like it. i like it right i love how much i hate it yeah so that said this has been episode 47 of the inking out loud podcast uh next up Lauren and I are going to be doing an episode on our own once again, this time covering Iron Fist by Aaron Alston, the sequel to Wraith Squadron. Uh, if you are appreciating what we're doing on this, check us out on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, we got all kinds of fun benefits. We got exclusive short episodes. You can get early access to episodes. We have a monthly newsletter. So, uh, yeah, check us out there. That is, once again, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. As always, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yep. And our special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, Lauren. Yeah. And we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody.